0: Milliken and this is Rebecca Milliken and this is crime and stuff the podcast that you would do if you had nothing, nothing better, better to there. do yes. yes and is this number 46
1: yeah wow we're, we're zeroing in on 50. wow
0: yeah but we have updates I do have and a very overdue update because I suck so this this is an update about our first ever the episode. yoga twin that was a over a year ago yeah it was it, it was, was November of 2016. Wow. And it's our second most popular episode. It really is. This update was actually February 2nd, so it is a little bit overdue. A little bit. I'm going to just read some of this article. This is from NewYorkUpstate.com. They were from upstate, the Utica area. This story is by Jeff Herbert. The Yoga Twins murder trial has ended in an acquittal. The Associated Press reports Central New York native Alexandria Duval was found not guilty after being accused of deliberately driving off a Hawaii cliff and killing her identical twin sister, Anastasia. Second Circuit Judge Peter Cahill delivered the verdict Thursday. Duval opted to have a judge instead of a jury decide the case. Good move. Very smart of her. I'm disappointed, Maui County prosecuting attorney J.D. Kim said after the verdict. The facts clearly show it was at least reckless behavior. Well, reckless behavior isn't freaking murder. Alexandra was driving an SUV with her twin sister in the passenger seat in 2016 when witnesses said they saw the pair arguing, yelling, and even hair-pulling while fighting over the wheel. The Ford Explorer then plunged 200 feet over a cliff, killing Anastasia and critically injuring Alexandra. Duval's defense attorney, Bernie Berber, Described the crash as a tragic accident Duval did not testify. It's been an extremely emotional ordeal for her. Burver told the Maui News. You can't imagine losing your twin sister in that kind of catastrophic tragic accident. Then being charged with causing the death to of your sister, which she didn't. She's extremely relieved. I bet. And then they go on to basically give you background information, which you can find if you listen yes. to episode one. And then it says, Alex- Alexandria Duval is going to take some time to figure out what to do next, Berver told the AP. Yep. Good for her. So I'm glad she was acquitted. Honestly, I don't see how you can even say it was murder. Maybe they could have argued it was like a, a murder-suicide I, mean, I guess it would depend on what attempt. the definition of murder is. And we talk about, but it's but. just... But... In any case, it
1: was unfortunate. Yes, but there didn't seem to be intent. No, there's a lot
0: easier ways to kill. Just somebody. because they fought a lot and pulled each other's hair. No,
1: I mean, what's the problem with that? I don't
0: know. Anyway, so I don't that's... know if we ever pulled each other's hair. No, oh, I think we discussed that too.
1: Right, that. we all we discuss all that in episode one. Yeah, of crime and stuff. Our first ever. So I have an update too. I'm Ooh. sorry, I can't remember the episode number. It was last fall. In any case, it's the episode about Peter Madsen, the Danish inventor, submarine builder, who is charged with murder for killing journalist Kim Wall. Mm -hmm. His trial began last week. When you hear this, it'll have been ongoing and maybe we'll even have a verdict. I'm not sure how trials work in Denmark, And it's weird because it looks like he's already... It started Thursday and today is Sunday. So it looks like he was already on the stands. So maybe they do things different than we do. But in any case, he's accused of murdering her on his submarine, dismembering her. He had a couple different stories about what happened. First, he said he let her off on shore. Then he said she was hit in the head with the hatch and killed. Then when they found her skull and it had no damage, he said she was overcome by fumes and he had to to dismember her to get her out of the submarine, which is basically the story he's got now. So Madsen, 47... Was standing trial at Copenhagen City Court. Accused of torturing Wall, who was 30, before he either cut her throat or strangled her on a submarine in August. And this is by Jan Olson of the Associated Press, by the way. He's charged with murder, dismemberment, and indecent handling of a corpse. He denies murder, but he admitted he dismembered her and wanted to bury her at sea. (laughs) Sorry. Yeah, I know. Prosecutor Jacob Bush Jepsen started the 12-day trial by reading out the charges, describing in detail how Wall's body parts were found on the ocean bed. He said a psychiatric report has concluded that Madsen has, quote, "...no empathy or feelings of guilt." I think that would pretty much be sociopath or one of those things. Manson, wearing glasses, a dark shirt, and jeans. that's classic reporting where you describe what the defendant is yes. wearing. Listen quietly with his fist closed. Wall's this- parents were also present at the trial. Testifying, Madsen repeated his claim that Wall died accidentally inside the UC 3 Nautilus submarine while he was on deck. He said Wall, quote, had a wonderful evening until it <laughs> ended in an accident, uh-huh. but denied that any sexual activity had taken place between them. He's also accused of um, assaulting her. On Thursday, when the trial started, he described how he found Wall lifeless after a sudden pressure problem in the submarine. Yeah, the pressure of his fucking hands around her no throat, right? Quote, I could not open the hatches. I heard Kim. It was not good, he said. He added that he tried to give her first aid when he finally reached her, but stopped because it was impossible to stay inside. Quote, there was a risk of having a submarine with two deaths, he told the court. Wow, good thing he got out of there. <laughs> the prosecution claims idiot. Wall's murder was premeditated because Madsen brought along tools he normally didn't mm-hmm. take, including the saw he yes. cut her up with. Bush Jepsen, the prosecutor, said the cause of her death has not yet been established, but he said her blood was found on Madsen's nose in his bodysuit. And he yeah. also said that detectives found violent videos and texts about killing women on Madsen's laptop and external hard drive. And we talked about all that in our episode which was number...
0: Let me look it up.
1: Members of the court were shown a drawing of the multiple stabs to her torso, and I think we established that many of those were to her genitals. An audio file of a radio exchange between Madsen and maritime officials from August 11th, the day after Madsen and Wall embarked on their trip, was also played. In the recording, Madsen said he had let Wall off on an island and that there were no injured persons aboard, but only technical problems. So the update is he's on trial. It's... Wow. Wow. It says the trial at Copenhagen City Court ends April twenty fifth. Ooh. So that's a long trial. I don't know how they do things and And that
0: was episode thirty seven.
1: Thank you. So are we ready for this tonight's story?
0: I'm ready. Okay. Because I'm not the one doing (laughs) I'm not the one that had to write the script, so yeah. All right. Well,
1: today's story is about the Turpin family aka the house of horrors family
0: uh, needless to say trigger warning which we never give trigger warnings, we never give trigger warnings but because i figure if you're listening to this and you see what it's about that should be enough of a trigger for you right and i don't go into a lot
1: of detail anything more than what you might have heard on tv there is one thing i'm going to warn about as i get in to it about animals yeah uh. But we'll get there when I get there. Okay. Most of the information, a lot of it, comes from the Los Angeles Times, mm-hmm. which I want to say because I support journalism, I got a subscription to. Nice. Not only for this, but I really enjoyed the Dirty John podcast, and that came oh, from the Los Angeles yeah. Times. And they always have a lot of good stories that are syndicated to other newspapers. And so I figured it's worth getting and a I subscription got, uh, lots to. I got of
0: the Sarah Chalker one, which was episode right. four, I think. Right.
1: So supporting journalism. And I also got some... From TV and ABC 2020, hmm. and I'll also say where I got other things. There, the Independent in the UK was a good news source for some things. And and as you know, I like to go in a linear narrative. Okay. So to build the story. <laughs> and I'm just saying <laughs> Are that. Are you saying that so I
0: won't interrupt asking questions?
1: Yeah, not necessarily you, but anybody out there who's frustrated that I'm not talking about all the stuff all the details about the House of Horrors that we've it. heard of, they'll, they'll come. Louise Robinette was born in Princeton, West Virginia in 1968. Her father was a county employee, and her younger sister says the family had a pretty normal life inside the home. I had a hard time finding out how many siblings she had. I think she may have even had four or five. The 2020 episode where this sister was interviewed never mentions any other siblings or her mother mm. or anything. But Her younger sister, Elizabeth, said the family had, quote, a pretty normal life inside the home, unquote. But she also describes a world where it was, quote, her way or no way, as far as Louise was concerned. I think we've all been there. Is Louise
0: older or younger? Yes, older.
1: Okay. If she had to sneak around to do it, she would, Elizabeth Flores told 2020. She also said the other children in the family were sexually abused by a close relative who was not one of their parents. And another sister, Teresa Robinette, said that Louise and she herself were abused. Mm. And Elizabeth said she herself was abused. But Elizabeth said they were not allowed to talk about the abuse. Uh. And I'm not making excuses for my sister, but that may have been an underlying issue, she told twenty twenty. So not really normal at all.
0: No. Well, unless you think that's normal, which it is, unfortunately. Right. But
1: as we'll go through this story, we'll find a lot of people. They'll describe something as being normal, and then they'll describe something that's absolutely not normal. Mm. So, and as I said, that's something that'll keep coming up, what people think of as normal, even if it's not. David Turpin lived in the same town, and he was seven years older than Louise strangely, he had the same Moe from the Three Stooges haircut in his high school yearbook photo that he has now.
0: Or the Dumb and Dumber look. So had it hadn't
1: yet morphed into the mo from the Three Stooges mullet it is. And as you said, yeah, the Dumb and Dumber. There's a lot of ways to describe it. I've seen it mostly as a bowl cut. Yeah. Described as a bowl cut. I
0: don't understand. I
1: mean, not that I want to bring the Three Stooges down into no, this dirty story. No, don't but bring Moe into that. his activities listed in the yearbook were the Bible, Science, and Chess Club. Hmm. Yes. And I think we can all draw. Is there something wrong with the chess club? <laughs> a reporter from West Virginia described him to 2020 as quiet, nerdy, a homebody. Hmm. His family, like Louise's family, attended the Princeton Church of God, which was a Pentecostal church. And I don't know if people out there are familiar necessarily with Pentecostal, but it's fire and brimstone, talking in tongues. And, um, um is it
0: li- Bible-believing? Like Yes,
1: Bible-fundamentalist. Yeah. And Elizabeth said she had known David all her life. This is Louise's younger sister. When Louise was 15 and David was 22, they started dating.
0: Hmm.
1: A year into what 2020 describes as their romance... The couple ran off to Fort Worth, Texas. Elizabeth said it took the police three days to find them, and her mom wanted to press charges. Ew. But she said her dad had, quote-unquote, mixed emotions, and I'm not sure how this translates, because what she said after is, because we were taught that you don't have sex outside marriage. So I'm not sure how that translates into mi- mixed emotions, but in any case, the two had been brought back to West Virginia. After they were found, they were asked to come back, and they came back, I'm not really clear, and they got married. Yeah, and that was in 1985. Or as 2020 said, the two lovebirds tied the knot. (laughs) And I want to stop here for a second to make a point. The 2020 guy doesn't sound like the guy was doing a Keith Morrison-style campy sarcasm thing. And one of the biggest issues that helps to mislead people about domestic violence and issues surrounding control and dominance is the use of cutesy phrases like calling them lovebirds Or calling it a romance when the girl is 15 Mm -hmm. and the guy is 22 and making it sound normal. And I think that's one issue I feel with a lot of things is people don't understand that depicting things as like normal love affairs and stuff, when there's obviously more going on there. Yeah, is trivialized. And, and
0: some people might say, well, it's only seven years. It depends on the point of your life you're in. So. When someone's 15 and someone's 22, that's an adult man. Yes. Or woman, if the woman's 22. Yes. An adult with a child, and 15
1: is still right. The report on 2020 referred to their love or love affair mm-hmm. earlier a couple times, and I'm not saying those things don't exist. But when a person who's 15 or 16, regardless of gender, who's been abused and who may have other issues, is in a relationship with an adult. It shouldn't be depicted in fairy tale romance type terminology. They had a small church wedding with only family members attending, Elizabeth says. She says they were, quote, really happy and they just wanted to get on with their lives. And I'm not sure how much younger she is than Louise And how that may have skewed her perceptions. Her older sister, Teresa Robinette, and her half-brother, Billy Lambert, told a slightly different story. Teresa Robinette was on the Today Show. And I'm not sure where this interview, if this interview comes from that or somewhere else. But it was quoted in yet another publication. But apparently, when they ran off to Fort Worth, David was 23. Louise was 16. And David got her 10th grade teachers to sign her off. And he brought her to Texas, and the police tracked them down. Teresa describes it as a kidnapping. Teresa is older than Louise and described Mm. it as a kidnapping. And Teresa and Billy also said it was a secret wedding. It sounded like they got married... Without the family knowing. Makes wonder
0: if they got married in Texas. And, and maybe there was a second. There was a ceremony when they came right. back. And the younger so, sister would be too young to even...
1: Or she was depicting it a certain way for 2020. Yes. One issue with this, I had thought, oh, since this is such a new story, I wouldn't have to disseminate a lot of yeah. information, but one thing I found is there's a lot of information out there, and... Some of it conflicts, and some of it is sketchy. And also, when a family member is accused of something, too, everybody in the family is getting on TV and stuff. I'm not saying people deliberately lie or twist things, but people's memories are or different. A
0: positive people, Elizabeth
1: things. later says in this report that she's embarrassed. So people see things different ways, yeah. as I'm sure anybody in a family well, can you would. can
0: imagine if one of your brothers or sisters... Right.
1: But in any case, a year later the couple moved back to Fort Worth where David had found a job.
0: What was his connection with Fort Worth, did it say? And
1: he found a job at Lockheed Martin. Uh, I'm just curious but if I there's don't there's know, reason why they went there. Maybe they just wanted to get away from West Virginia, and it's a place where people go. Yeah. When I was watching, I think it was the press conference from the DA, somebody said, why did they come to California? And everybody's like, oh, who knows? Nobody knows. Because California is one of those places people go. They do, yeah. You know. But in any case... Elizabeth said that Louise told her she didn't want to stay at home because of what had happened in her past there, and there were too many reminders, and she just wanted to start over. Elizabeth was upset that her sister had left, and they had a cassette player that they used to play with, but who didn't? Yeah. And Louise left a message to Elizabeth on it, telling her how much she loved her and that she was going to miss her, as Elizabeth says, quote, because she knew she was going to be gone a long ways. Hmm. The couple occasionally came back for visits at first. And Elizabeth said they seemed fine. And again, she's younger. She would be a young teenager, I guess, at this time or something. Quote, they acted the same around me. David was good to me. She was good to me. Their first child, a daughter, was born around
0: that time, shortly after.
1: So when was that? I'm sorry. 2020 was not good
0: with the oh, okay. years. so sometime in the 80s, probably late 80s. It,
1: it, the child is now 29. Okay. So it would have been yeah. Yeah, around nineteen eighty, Yeah, late 80s. Okay. According to the L.A. Times, they lived in the house, the first quote-unquote house of horrors in Fort Worth from 1990 to 99. So they lived somewhere else in Fort Worth before that. And then Elizabeth said the visits back home stopped and contact became much less frequent, stopping almost altogether after the fourth kid was born. Elizabeth asked Louise around the time they had their fourth kid if she could spend the summer with them in Fort Worth. And they said yes. The couple, Elizabeth noted, was really strict. The oldest daughter, who would have been, Elizabeth estimates, in first grade, around first grade age, even though it was summer, and Elizabeth is not good with dates and ages Mm. in this report either, was kept in her room, quote, a lot. So she would have been, what, about seven? Seven, six or seven, yeah. They would let her come down and eat meals. She'd have to ask permission to sit down, including being required to smile, look her mom in the eye until she was given permission. Louise would say, go ahead. The girl would eat. And go Ah, back up to her room. ah. And Elizabeth says it was the same routine
0: every day. And she thought that wasn't...
1: Well, I'm getting to that. When I was looking up, because everybody's asking why, when I was looking up the psychology behind some of this behavior, and there were some reports that said, well, when people have as many kids as they did, sometimes they do things to try to control them. But this was when they had four kids. Yeah. And that may seem a lot to some people, but it doesn't result in that kind of discipline. No shit. In any case, all the kids were kept in their rooms for long stretches of time and had limited contact with Elizabeth. She said it was almost like Louise didn't want her talking to them and the kids weren't allowed to talk to her without permission. So can you see a seven-year-old not being allowed to talk to no. somebody without permission? Elizabeth felt uneasy about it but also didn't feel she had the right to speak up. She said to 2020, maybe I shouldn't question her parenting. I mean, what have I got to offer? I'm 19, 20 years old, you know? I wasn't comfortable with her like I used to be. I can kind of see that. Well, there's but, more yeah, later, because okay. the theme of people not speaking up, obviously, uh, comes up over yes. and over in this. So,
0: okay.
1: she is also upset to find that they were drifting away from their strict Pentecostal upbringing. Quote, <laughs> they didn't want to bring their kids up in church. They don't trust church people. Wow. She says they began checking up on <laughs> other churches, and here 2020 shows the interior of what's obviously, to my practice, a Catholic church, mm. and they show that, and then Elizabeth, Says they read up on witch doctors and stuff like that, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, hmm. but then she did say they checked on Mormons and Catholics and Mennonites, from what she remembers. Mm. But then they didn't like any of those, so she says they formed their own hybrid religion. Yeah,
0: that's the way. You um, do and it. she
1: thinks that's kind of where their house rules came oh, yeah, from.
0: Form your own church,
1: right? You form your own church where you're like the god yeah. or whatever.
0: Yeah, you know, make people do what you want.
1: And she says the rules also applied to her. She couldn't make phone calls, she couldn't have anyone over, and she couldn't tell anyone where she lived. She could only leave the house for her job. Well, it was all dictated by her sister, David would make all the decisions and then sit back and watch, she said. She's talking about Louise now. She always seemed to be in control, but there was always looks between them, and he was always sitting back and watching. Ugh. She also said as time progressed, David got, quote, very weird, flirty in front of Louise Ew. to her, Elizabeth. He'd talk about her body and stuff, and it got to the point where when she'd take a shower, she'd lock the door, and Louise would pick the lock with the end of a hanger, and they'd both come in. Ah. They wouldn't leave until she got out of the shower in front of them. Ah. But Elizabeth is quick to point out that David never touched her. Oh Oh my God. I want to get that on the record. David never touched me. She's very adamant about that. But it seems to me what he's doing here, and I don't think she gets this, and I don't think a lot of people get this, was showing her that he controlled her. That's right. And he didn't need to touch her to control her. And he... He could control her without touching her. It wasn't about sex. It was about control. Also, what she and other people don't seem to get is if he could control her like that, then maybe he could control Louise, too. Mm -hmm. And we'll talk more about that later. But Elizabeth moved out, and she says she wants to make it clear... I've never seen them abuse the kids in any way, sexually, physically, and again, well, what people think constitutes abuse and why then abuse isn't reported or recognized is an issue. People think it has to be a sexual or physical. And there are a lot of things about control that are abusive. You know, there's other ways to control people, as we'll find out. Yes. After the Turpins were arrested this past January, Riverside County DA Mike Hestron said that at some point in Fort Worth, the parents lived apart from the kids. I'm going to refer to them as kids. At this point now in 2018, 10 of them are adult age. But it's just easier for me to say the kids are the children, okay. even when I'm referring to what happened in 2018. Well, they're
0: children, so...
1: Right. Riverside County in California, DA Mike Hestron said that at some point in Fort Worth, the parents lived apart from the kids and just visited to drop off food occasionally. The kids at this time would have been well under 13 and probably younger since the Turpins left Fort Worth in 1999. So they left... The ki- where were they when the
0: kids... They lived somewhere else. They don't know. They don't There's know. There's a lot of things they don't know. So... They were trying to piece the pieces together. Do you know... I know you don't. So they were all under 13. So were some baby age or... They... I don't know. Oh, okay. I don't I'm know just... what the names of all the kids are. We know the oldest
1: one is 29. Yeah. This was before 1999. Okay. okay. So I'm... There were at least four kids... And we know they ended up with, what, 13? They so, ended up yeah. with 13, so, but before are, 1999, yeah. when they lived in Fort Worth, they left the kids at home and lived somewhere else and just stopped by the drop-off yeah. food. The oldest one was born 29 yeah. years ago, okay. so um, right. I'm not good at math, but... I took some time to figure out that they would all would have, at the very oldest, 13 or young, and probably younger. But Hestron said at his press conference January 18th, and I'll talk about that more later, that there's a lot they don't know, and they're trying to put the pieces together. I put the pieces of this narrative that you're hearing now together through a bunch of different things, and there were some things that were contradictory or didn't make sense, so I, in some cases, chose what seemed to make the most sense or seemed to me the most credible in any case. Okay. After David and Louise were arrested this past January, a schoolmate of the oldest daughter posted on Facebook that he'd attended kindergarten through third grade with her in Fort Worth. And we're not saying their names mostly because I don't know them. I do know that they all start with J. Uh-oh. Yeah, I know. But one of the girls' names, the one who posted videos, secretly posted videos on YouTube, the 17-year-old, the one who escaped, spoiler alert, <laughs> I saw her name somewhere. I don't know that it's her name. I don't see any reason to say their names if they're not being made public. So, okay. But in any case, Taha nice. a pediatrics doctor in Houston, confirmed his Facebook post to the Associated Press. And that's where this following account is taken from. He described the oldest girl as a frail girl. She had pin straight hair with bangs and often wore the same purple outfit. He said she was teased and bullied, particularly because she smelled, quote, like filth. Unquote. Another classmate, Stephanie Hernandez, told the AP in a Facebook message that the girl was quiet and always wore dirt stained jeans that were too small. She said the girl was often bullied. I remember someone kind of slung her around like a rag doll, said Hernandez, who's a registered nurse in Mansfield, Texas. Muntajabuddin, the one who's now a doctor, wrote that it was jarring to learn in January that she, quote, quite literally had to sit in her own waist because she was chained to a bed. It is nothing but sobering to know that this person who sat across from you at the lunch table went home to squalor and filth, Well, you went home to a warm meal and a bedtime story, he wrote. After learning of the case, he shared on Facebook his, quote, overwhelming sense of guilt and shame over how she was treated at school.
0: Oh, it makes me so sad. He told
1: AP that despite the fact that she was bullied by her peers, she, quote, was still one of the most pleasant people I've had the opportunity to meet. She had this whimsical optimism to her that couldn't be dampened, couldn't be doused no matter what anybody threw at her. He was apparently taken to task by many for his post about why he didn't do more at the time oh, and that geez. kind of thing. And I'm like, um, this was kindergarten through third grade. And it, to them, so she was you she know was a sad, dirty little kid that yeah. people made fun of. Yeah. I'm not justified making fun of kids, but... Ugh. And he told AP it was just meant to be an honest lesson. Take it or leave it. But at some point, the Turpins started homeschooling their kids. Obviously, David and Louise were very controlling people. We talk about it more later, but by homeschooling, you have a lot more control over your children. And also the the reporters, the people who are, I don't mean news reporters, I mean the people who are there to look for signs of abuse and neglect are no longer in their lives. And I almost wonder if somebody... And this hasn't come out in the news anywhere. Maybe it's not even something anybody remembers, but if somebody said something to somebody, maybe even unofficially, that made him pull the kids from school. It could be. But they had little contact by this time with family or with other people. David worked at Lockheed Martin, which is a defense contractor, but their finances were in the red. And in 1999, they fled their home in Fort Worth, just left everything behind, and the house was foreclosed on. The guy who bought it took photos that he's kept all these years because he was so disturbed by what he found. There was filth around the house, scratches on the doors and Uh. walls, blood and waste that he assumed was from animals. Oh, yeah, okay. And they... I guess he would, I mean... Right. They moved into a single-story house on 34 acres in the remote town of uh Rio Vista, 15 miles south of Fort Worth. And this is something you also see in stories of control, moving to a place with less visibility where people are more likely to leave you an- alone well, and not see what, what you're in doing. in the middle of
0: 30-something acres. Right. Yeah.
1: And it was a little ranch. At first, it was this ranch house, um, three or four bedrooms. Still, even though they were on this 34 acres, and neighbors said they saw some weird stuff right away that made them think something mm. wasn't right. Neighbor Ricky Vineyard said almost immediately they thought the family was off. For instance, they kept the lights on at all hours with the blinds drawn. One Christmas, they bought eight new children's bicycles that sat outside unused until they became bleached by the sun, and he never saw the kids use them. The bicycles just sat there. That's weird. Soon after the family arrived, one of the older girls tried to run away but was returned home by a local resident. And I know everybody's saying, oh my god, how could they do that? But she was a kid who ran away and somebody brought her home. David Turpin would stand in the driveway shooting cans with his pistol aiming toward the road. Hmm. Barbara Vineyard, now 19, Ricky's daughter, and her sister Ashley played with the Turpin children a few times in a nearby creek, but the kids wouldn't tell them what their names were. Hmm. And Barbara says, we had to guess them basically and the kids didn't like that either. The next time we saw them walking down the street, one sibling said to the other, we can't talk to them anymore, remember? And this is another thing, a writing thing, that I found in a lot of these stories. There are things that are written like they would do this or they did this and it makes it sound like it was often and then you hear a remark like that that's like, well, maybe it was just one time. Yeah. So all you writers out there, keep that in mind. (laughs) Sometimes in the evenings... Barbara would hear the Turpin children playing in their yard, so one day she grabbed a jump rope and knocked on the door. At the time, they had moved into a double-wide trailer, and I'll get to that later. And she knocked on the door of the trailer, and she says, I knew they were really strange, but I was willing to get over the strangeness to be friends, she said. And I saw her on one thing where she said she was about eight or nine years old at this point. A skinny, pale girl with long brown hair opened the door and just stared, she said. She said, her eyes got real wide. She closed the door back in my face. She came around the back, looked at me, and then ran back away into the house through the back door. Hmm. And Vineyard didn't try to go over there to play again. Her sister Ashley has a similar story. She told the Daily Mail that she knocked on the door and Louise answered and told her she wasn't allowed to play with the kids anymore. And after that, any time she'd knock, no one would answer. I wouldn't even knock after that. She had uh, a lot the of balls. They for were persistent kids. Kid. Well, yeah. they lived out there in the middle of nowhere and yeah, wanted friends, bored, I yeah. guess. In the early 2000s, the sheriff's office was called by a neighbor complaining that a pig belonging to the Turpins escaped from a pen and ate 55 pounds of dog food. (sighs) Also around that time, the sheriff was called after a four-year-old daughter was bitten by a dog of the Turpins, a daughter of the Turpins. David Turpin told them he took the girl to a hospital for stitches and the dog to a veterinarian to be put down, according to records obtained by Associated Press. And I read that somewhere, not in an Associated Press story, and there were a lot of stories. The years are different in different stories, huh. and it's not clear, but I think somebody at the hospital, maybe they had a law, they have to report dog bites Probably. or something. I'm not sure. I would think so. Sometime between 2001 and 2004, that all happened. Ashley said, and she's the daughter who kept knocking at the door, said she could see the baby frequently in the playpen in a window, and the baby would be there all day and night in the playpen. And well, maybe whatever. she was,
0: like, when I was about that age, my friend and I used to, like, spy. And yeah, I used to, we window. used to do that, too. <laughs> yeah.
1: Ricky Vineyard um, said he and his wife considered reporting the couple to Rio Vista authorities, but he had reservations because he had grown up in the town, which has a few hundred people, and they lived at the end of a country road surrounded by pastures miles from the sheriff's office. And they decided not to alert authorities, and he said, we discussed it and we didn't want to have the repercussions with them. And they were concerned because Turpin was armed and they saw him out there shooting. And I think the underlying theme is they didn't think authorities would do
0: much well, and then they'd be stuck. Met, like, even if it's supposedly anonymous who reported yes. it being a small town, they right. know it was him. right? Yeah. And Barbara,
1: one of the daughters, says now, for the most part, when you live out in the country, you keep to yourself she said. And I'm glad she said that because there's been a lot of this, oh, back in the day, people would have, everybody knew each other and people would have, but things were no different back in the day.
0: They were just as bad. I think now even people think it's worse, but it's just more open. Right.
1: But hearing that the couple had been charged made her wonder if there was more she could have done to help. And we'll hear this a lot in this story. She says, Hearing about this makes me think I didn't do my part as a person. In 2010, the Turpins were foreclosed on and left for California. Or they left for California and then were foreclosed on. I'm not sure of the sequence. He did file for bankruptcy once they got to California. Ashley said the secrecy just grew and grew and then they were gone. Mm -hmm. Rosa Gonzalez, a reporter interviewed on 2020, who's a newspaper reporter or TV reporter, I'm not sure, in Texas, said when they left, they left everything behind and as last anyone in Texas heard from them back in 2010. And Ashley and the rest of the Vineyard family went in looking around because they were curious. And I'm like, hey, you don't have to explain why. Hey, we know. She said there were bunk beds, like six of them if she remembers, stacked all in a row, desks lined up like a schoolroom, religious material that she describes as off the wall, things like prepare for Armageddon. Mm. 2020 made it look like that was the house. But Ricky Vineyard said it was the double wide trailer, which he described as waist deep in filth. Ugh. And okay, now people who are squeamish may want to cover their ears for a minute or two and go la 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 la. He says there were dead dogs and cats, and the home smelled rancid. He found two chihuahuas that had survived by eating waste from a mound of soiled diapers. Ew! How did that survive? Poop. Well, poop is waste from people, you know. The family's Ford F-150, and who knows how long it took before they went in. It probably wasn't very long before they went into the house after the people. I know, I would have. The family's (laughs) Ford F-150 truck, of course they had one of those, was heaped with dirty diapers and empty Vienna sausage cans, Ricky said. It seemed like that's all they ate, he said. (laughs) He said the feces-littered living room had eight small desks, chalkboard, alphabet, and number signs stapled to the wall.
0: Why, Why can't they use the toilet? I'm just saying. That's
1: a rhetorical question. Yes. Is it
0: human feces? I assume so. Uh-huh.
1: <laughs> Everything had locks on it, he said. The closet had locks, the toy chest, the refrigerator. And this is not the first you've heard of feces in their house because the Fort I Worth know. house was smeared with Ugh. feces. Well, they didn't let the kids go to the bathroom, oh, that's is right. one of the things. Ugh.
0: God. Especially when they
1: were chained up. Ugh. He says there were no beds, just mattresses. There wasn't a place in that house that wasn't filthy. Ugh. Ugh. I oh. was going to get to the whole not letting them go okay. to the bathroom okay. later. Okay. Right now, okay. I'm building okay. the story. Okay. Okay. Sorry. But at some point, they bought a double-wide trailer, moved everybody from the house into the double-wide trailer, and didn't use the house anymore. Vineyard also says at one point they had a big dumpster outside the house. It just got filled with waste. It disappeared, and then the waste just piled up outside the house. Billy Baldwin, who bought the house in the foreclosure sale, describes it as nasty with stuff all over the walls. He doesn't say what the stuff is. I assume some of it's the dirt and feces They showed him photos of the Fort Worth house, but 2020 also shows some weird drawing, like somebody drew on the wall, and it was very weird, and I don't know if that's what he meant. 2020 did not do a great job of (sighs) recording this story. God, 2020. He also found Polaroid photos, one of two beds with a rope tied to the end of one, Hmm. and they show that, and I know a lot of people would say, oh my God, that means, but, you know, kids tie ropes to things. Mm, It doesn't necessarily mean somebody's being tied to the bed. We didn't have any idea what was going on in there, he said. The Texas Department of Family and Protective Services said they did not have any reports or investigations concerning the family. A spokesman for Lockheed Martin, where Turpin worked until 2010, said he worked there but had no other information. The family filed for bankruptcy, their second, and bankruptcy documents show David Turpin earned more than 140000 a year in 2011, hmm. but that the family's expenses exceeded his take-home pay by more than $1,000 a month. They were $100,000 to $500,000 in debt. I wonder what they could have. Uh, I don't know. Louise Turpin, listed as a homemaker, had no income. The records show. And the thing is, like I saw some things that said, well, you know, they had that many kids, he couldn't yeah, keep but up. never. But they fed weren't him. feeding the kids. All they fed him was Vienna sausage. And they weren't paying their mortgage. And, and they, they didn't buy. Right. They didn't buy him clothes. I know. So it's not like I know taking care of 14 kids is probably. That's but our grandparents I mean. did it yeah, on they a were lot less. Very poor. Yeah, they were poor. But what I'm saying is, people, well, if you have that many kids, of course you're going to file for bankruptcy. 140 dollars a year in 2011, it's not bad. It's not bad. But Mm. anyway, the bankruptcy was filed after they moved to California in 2010, but they moved to Murrieta, California that year, where they lived for four years. And Murrieta is about halfway between L.A. and San Diego. Hmm. Neighbor Mike Clifford said the lights would be on all night and he'd see the kids marching past maybe the windows. it was the electric
0: bill that... Possibly, from the lights them. being on all night.
1: <laughs> yeah, I know. They were marching past the window. He's come under some criticism, that he didn't report that. Oh, Jesus. But he said he thought maybe the kids had special needs and it was some kind of therapy. He didn't know what it was. Well,
0: what are you going to do? Call them, oh, there's kids marching I'm around. getting to that. Okay.
1: Yeah. Clifford, an aerospace machinist who works late shifts, tried to make sense of what he saw. It was kind of strange, he said, but there was never anything to say, oh my God, I should call somebody. He also said, or the LA Times said about him, any red flags were lowered because his wife often made small talk with two of the Turpin's daughters on the way to the mailbox. And this is another case where this says often, then I saw another story, and I don't know if it was his wife or not, But there was somebody who said, I talked to two of the girls. I thought they were girls, but maybe they were older now that I've seen this near the mailbox and they both looked like they were scared to death. I've seen that one too, yeah. So I'm not sure if that was somebody else or his wife. The LA Times, his wife often made small talk. There were a lot of people over the years who saw things and I see two distinct types as I looked through all these stories. People who saw things that seemed really weird but are definitely things you'd hesitate to call the cops about a report
0: because you just don't know what you're seeing. Yeah. And also people... People don't necessarily, we can talk more about it later, but you don't jump to the worst conclusion because it's not something you would even imagine.
1: Right, and there's more to that, and I'll get to that later. But then there are the things, too, like what the sister saw, the sister Elizabeth saw in the house, that are obvious red flags to, to abuse, but that people have such rigid ideas of what abuse is that they don't see it as such. And maybe you'd have to be an expert or watch a lot of true crime. But also crime. if you're a child seeing it. And well, she was 19 or oh, 20. Oh, no, that's right,
0: Elizabeth, I'm sorry. But
1: what I'm saying is, and even other people, that there are things, there have to be physical marks yeah. on somebody to be abused. Or you have to, yeah, you have people to don't understand physically
0: what, attack somebody. Somehow. Right,
1: people don't understand how control and co- coercive control can be abusive and that type of thing. And I also want to point out that all the non-law enforcement or social services, non-social services type in this story who have come under so much criticism are just that. They're not schooled in these things. And I have to believe that if a lot of this was brought to the attention of the authorities at the time, over the past 30 years, it would have been responded to with a big so what. Can you see calling the cops and saying, you know, these people, the lights are on all night, and I see the kids marching past the window. And the cops are like, why are you fucking telling us that? I know, I know. That's not against the law, I know. know, What the fuck? But more on that later. In California, as in Texas, David Turpin registered as a homeschooler. I'm not sure if he registered in Texas, but he did homeschool the kids, so I assume he registered. In each state, has its own requirement of the 50 states for homeschooling. I don't want to get tangled into the weeds of it here, but it appears to have been relatively easy and lightly regulated in California. No state agency regulates, actually, or oversees private schools, and he registered, actually, as a private school. In this, what
0: year, 2004? Ten. Oh, sorry.
1: Okay. But they are subject to an annual inspection by the state or local fire marshal. Hmm. The city could find no records of fire inspections. AP looked into it. Paris... Assistant City Clerk, and that was the second town they lived in in California, Judy Haney, said in response to a public records request by AP, City Fire Marshal Dave Martinez did not return repeated phone calls to AP. The LA Times reported that David Turpin was listed as the principal. He submitted paperwork each year, but the information sought by the California Department of Education, like the address, type of school, and enrollment numbers, likely offered authorities scant insight into the children's lives. That's... AP saying that, the annual paperwork is all that the California law requires. Neither the Department of Education nor the local school districts had any legal responsibility to knock on the Turpin's door, review their curriculum, or assess the children's academic performance. While state law requires private school employees to submit to fingerprinting and background checks, there is no such demand placed on parents teaching their own children. And that's the LA Times. We really know nothing about them, said Grant Bennett, superintendent of the Paris Union High School District. If they were in homeschool from the beginning, they wouldn't have been on our radar. While the DA later said the abuse escalated over the years, it looks like the Turpins made an effort to be seen in public more after they moved to Paris. And that's P-E-R-R-I-S. Not like the one in France. In 2014, they took a trip to Disneyland. I saw that picture. In, yeah, in the, the one with the Thing 1, Thing 2 t-shirts. Yes. They're all wearing Thing 1, Thing 2. Yeah, that thing was two, All the way, yeah. Very weird. There's a fairly disturbing video of a vows reenactment, or at least I found it disturbing, in Vegas with David and Louise in wedding garb and the girls all wearing plaid dresses. There were ten girls and three boys. Girls all wearing plaid dresses and the boys in suits. Ugh. And, um, I
0: think I saw still
1: Right, there are still pictures of it too, and a too thin Elvis impersonator cavorting around. Oof. They had a fairly robust social media presence, though all the photos show the kids disturbingly dressed alike. Their thinness is obvious, and Louise often looks haggard too, with large circles under her eyes. Mm. Um, though a childhood photo shows that—I mean, she didn't have the big circles under her eyes, but she did I kind can of. And the Facebook account was owned by both David and Louise. Of course, um, I've
0: got a couple of Facebook friends like that. It's yeah, husband and wife together. Hmm. It always strikes And around
1: 2012 or so, when they first opened their Face account, they posted a photograph of their family. The youngest wasn't born yet and wrote that all 12 are our children and we are very proud of them. Authorities reviewed the Facebook page. I assume it's been shut down. I didn't have time to look for it. Probably has, um,
0: unfortunately.
1: The LA Times said, It is filled with recent pictures of the large family wearing matching outfits and smiling at Disneyland. Photos posted in May 2016 depict an apparent marriage vow renewal ceremony. That's the one I talked about in Vegas. I think that was part of, you know, people are like, oh, why'd they put stuff on Facebook? Well, they weren't putting on Facebook, hey, we're torturing our kids, we're not letting them eat. They were putting pictures showing them as what they thought was a happy family. Like a
0: lot of people do on Facebook well, it's part to of the, a certain extent.
1: Yes. And That's it's something. part of the public face thing that I'll talk yeah. about a little later. The oldest boy enrolled in a music class at Mount San Jacinto, I can't pronounce it, college. But Louise took him there, waiting outside the door for him during class and took him home. Classmate Angie Para told NBC that he was sweet, but an introvert. She tells of one time where he attended a potluck, and Louise must have been there, she doesn't mention it, and ate like he was starving. He stood by the table and didn't sit down, Para said. He literally ate plate after plate after plate. She didn't say whether he smelled or not, did she? No, she didn't. But she seems like a nice girl, and I've been known to do that at buffet potlucks. Also, (laughs) Louise Turpin was obsessed with the TV show Kate Plus 8. Her brother, her half-brother Billy Lambert, told Inside Edition that she thought maybe the Turpins could have a reality show of their own. Uh, Dream on. (laughs) He says, I believe that my sister wanted a reality show because the very last conversation that I had with her before all this happened, she did actually say that she feels they would be perfect for TV. He also said that they were planning on having a 14th kid. Cops searching the house discovered hundreds of DVDs, including all seasons of Kate Plus 8.
0: You mean John and Kate Plus 8? Well, oh, Kate plus eight. there was Kate Plus 8 after, after John left. Maybe I'm, that's why she This was
1: it. on Inside Edition. I okay. assumed they would know yeah. the name of the show. Lambert says dressing all the children alike for public outings and posting videos of trips to Las Vegas to renew their vows by an Elvis impersonator were all part of their desire to be reality TV stars. But
0: that means that they thought they actually were kind of normal. And People yeah. have different
1: perceptions... I mean, this is like that old thing about the elephant, you know, the five blind guys and the elephant. I don't have to explain what that is, right? So maybe she said that shit to her half brother. Maybe she, in her twisted mind, thought they could have a reality show. Maybe putting stuff on Facebook was part of presenting a good public face, Mm -hmm. which sociopaths do, and I'll talk about later. Maybe it was saying, oh, somebody will see us on Facebook and we'll do a reality show and that'll solve our financial problems. They were obviously not rational people. And who knows how much of that was Louise fantasizing. Uh, You have to believe at some point they they knew enough to not expose themselves to public. So I have to believe they didn't really... I mean, everybody says, oh, they could do a reality show about me. I mean, you and me joke about that, how boring it would be. And they... You know, so it could have been something people say. You know, people anyway. Okay. One neighbor in Paris, Kimberly Milligan. Ooh, no no relation. No relation to us. Different last name. Told the LA Times that she thought the family was strange. Maybe that's just a default. We should say everybody thinks the family... And like many of the neighbors, she said the children were very pale. She often wondered why, if there were so many children in the house, they never came out to play. Many neighbors said the same thing. And she said, she mentioned that she thought they were homeschooled. And, you know, something is off, but you don't want to think bad of people. Another neighbor said was about two years ago, she came across the preteens, or who knows if they were preteens or not, putting up Christmas lights and said, hello, and she said, they looked at us like a child who wants to make themselves invisible. Several neighbors recalled an incident several months ago in which a number of children were out in front of the house late at night working under floodlights to put sod in the yard. That was kind of weird. All four of them were on the ground rolling out sod. said Wendy Martinez, 41, who lives around the corner. A woman who appeared to be the children's mother was standing in front of the home in an archway watching them do it. Huh. Martinez recalled, at the time, code enforcement officers from the city had visited the neighborhood and were sighting homes with unkempt yards, ah. said Gary Stein, 32, who lives on the street. I'm glad I don't live in that neighborhood, huh? <laughs> he says, I thought it was weird, but I'm the kind of guy that doesn't want to get in anybody's business, he said. So maybe they were re- putting sod down because yeah, they, they got didn't cited, want but any- why
0: do it in the... who knows?
1: Because... I'm getting to that. I'm sorry. They do everything at night and sleep during the day.
0: Okay. Okay. Okay.
1: But I'm trying to build up the story. Oh,
0: I'm sorry.
1: I'm Saline sorry. Simon, who lived across the street from them in Paris, said over the years she would wave hello and goodbye to the family from across the road. People can't see you waving. <laughs> from time to time, she took them their mail. And last year, why when did I...
0: she take them their mail? That well, you know, because nice it I... was in the mail. But I don't know. i just uh, saying. When Simon's
1: When Simon's daughter was selling Girl Scout cookies, Louise bought eight or nine boxes, Simon said. It was always clear the family was not especially social, Simon said. I'm trying not to say like Simon said. But the interactions they did have made Simon feel like they were just very private. She Mm. talked to David and Louise about two years ago at a community gathering at which the awards for a Christmas decorating contest were being announced. Mm. The Turpins had entered the contest, and they had a nativity scene in their front yard with hay for the manger, and a nativity star in their window, and they had Santa Claus in a sleigh near the garage. Just like the real nativity. Just like the real nativity. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get me on a tangent about Santa Claus and Christmas. <laughs> she said that at the time, at that social event, Louise talked about her children and about the family's roots in West Virginia and Texas and about their love of Las Vegas. Hmm. Louise introduced Simon to the children who were with her at the event. One of the boys Um, told Simon he was in his mid-twenties. And I told him, you look so young, you look 15, Simon recalled. Mm -hmm. The young man smiled and nodded, but Louise did almost all the talking for the family. Hmm, yeah. Yep. Louise said that she and her husband had taken their older children to Las Vegas when they turned 21. Turpin laughed about how her children were constantly asked for an ID during those trips because they looked so young. And apparently Louise did keep in touch with the family to the extent that they knew some of what went on. Louise Turpin's sister, Teresa Robinette, recalls how the nature of her video calls with her nieces and nephews changed over time until she was no longer allowed to speak with them at all.
0: Hmm.
1: They were very friendly, but it was a very weird conversation every time because they weren't real talkative, she said (laughs) on NBC's... (laughs) Megyn Kelly today.
0: (laughs) It's probably like, you know, hey, blah, 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 blah. And they say nothing. That's right. When
1: she let me video Skype to them, it got to where instead of having them all together like we did years and years ago, it got to where she would bring in one or two or three at a time, and then she would send them out and tell them to send down so-and-so. The last time she spoke with the siblings, Robinette said, was about seven or eight years ago. Not long before the last time the children's grandparents, Betty and James Turpin, visited the family for five days when they lived in Marietta. They weren't allowed to watch TV. They weren't allowed to have friends over. The normal things that kids do, she said. Hmm... And it's not clear if she knew that before the arrest or after, but I assume she's talking about when they knew them and talked to them. We always thought she was living the perfect life. She would tell us they went to Disneyland all the time. They would go to Vegas. Louise did not attend her parents' funerals and had little contact with her family, Robinette said. Elizabeth Flores, the younger sister, said she never let us talk to her kids. She wouldn't even accept my Facebook request. It's because David controlled the Facebook page, maybe. We all wondered what was going on. My parents booked several flights to go see them, but when they got there, they wouldn't tell them where to go, and my parents left
0: crying every time. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> it's like, that is pretty funny. We're going to visit you, okay. <laughs> yeah, then they got there, yeah. But, like, what the fuck? I know. <laughs> they died before they got to
1: see them again. Aww. Keep laughing, yeah. It's that's just heartbreaking, hard. and I'm so embarrassed about all of this, Elizabeth Flores said.
0: But the thing that kills me is, on one hand, they're like, we thought she lived the perfect life. Did you really think that? Because you're saying that, but then it's like... Oh. Well, and
1: that's the thing. Like Even earlier, when she said they had a normal home life, and then she and her sisters are talking about being abused by people, <laughs> and that they're not allowed to talk about the abuse, and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, you see that a lot in the stories, where people say these kind of platitudes... And then their next sentence is something where it's <laughs> no. obviously, no, this isn't good. This isn't normal. This isn't right. Oh, God. But we'll talk a-, a little more about that. But Floris, the youngest sister, is the mother of seven. And she's described, this was a story by The Independent, a newspaper from the UK. She was described as a Christian motivational speaker.
0: Hmm. And she says,
1: something didn't seem right about her parenting, but never would I have expected this.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. well, you know.
1: You don't expect would? that, yeah. right. David Turpin's parents said they had not visited the family for at least four years and were surprised and shocked by the allegations. They said they believed the Turpins have been called by God to have so many children, and they were given very strict homeschooling that included memorizing long Bible passages, and they understood that. <laughs> and Betty Turpin, David's mother, who's 81, said they were just like any ordinary family. She told that to the Southern California news group. Yeah,
0: they certainly were. And
1: they had such good relationships. I'm not just saying this stuff. These kids, we were amazed. They were sweetie this and sweetie that to each other. Despite all that, about two years ago, one of the daughters, who was 15 at the time, started hatching an escape plan. It's not clear how many of the other kids were involved. On January 13th, or in the wee hours of January 14th, she and a younger sister escaped through an open window. The younger child got scared and went back home, but the 17-year-old used, uh, is it the word decommissioned cell phone? To call 911, because as you know, you can still use a yes. cell phone to call 911. Good girl. Yeah, when the police got to the home... Three of the kids, and the sequence of events after she called 911, I found very muddled, so I won't go through, but she convinced them enough. She said her siblings were chained up, and I think she may have had pictures on the phone. Nice. It's hard to say. When the police got to the home, three of the kids were chained up. Uh. The Turpins managed to unchain the 11 and 14-year-old, but the 22 was still chained when the police went in. The house had a foul stench, I bet. police said. And police said despite the scramble to unchain the kids, Louise Turpin seemed surprised to see the authorities, Riverside Sheriff Captain Greg Fellows said. Hmm. It seemed that the mother was perplexed as to why we were at the residence, he said. <laughs> the Turpins were unable to immediately provide a logical reason why their children were restrained in that matter, deputies wrote. <laughs> I'm sorry, but is there a logical reason? <laughs> there is no reason because I know. no... They found the house was listed as Sandcastle Day School, a non-religious co-ed private school with students enrolled in 5th, 6th, 8th, 9th, 10th, and 12th grades. Riverside County District Attorney Mike Hestron in his January 18th news conference, stressed that it's an ongoing investigation and there's much that isn't known. But he gave what he called a snapshot of what led to the charges. This is severe emotional and physical abuse, Hestron said. There's no way around that. This is depraved conduct. Here are some of the facts, probably familiar to most of you by now, nearly two months after that press conference. He said that the family would sleep during the day and be up all night, going to bed about four or five in the morning. And he said that frequently during the press conference, and he stressed that it was every single person in the family. He said the punishment had begun early in the family's history, but escalated in intensity over the years. When they first began tying the kids up, they used ropes, but when one of the kids managed to get free from the ropes, they switched to chains and padlocks. (sighs) The kids were not allowed to use the bathroom. Ah. when they were chained up the kids would sometimes be bound for weeks or even months the parents would withhold food but often buy things like pies and leave them on the counter not allowing the kids to eat them or eating them in front of the kids Ah. and the parents themselves were well nourished yeah there were also lots of toys in the house but they were all new and in their packaging the kids weren't allowed to play with toys he said they were only allowed to shower once a year And they were punished for things like washing their hands above their wrists. He said 12 of the kids are severely malnourished, and the extent of the damage. Malnourishment can cause extensive physical and cognitive issues isn't yet Mm. known. The two-year-old appeared to be okay, the youngest baby. Mm -hmm. The family dogs also were healthy, apparently.
0: Hmm.
1: The kids are very limited in what they know. They didn't know what a police officer was, for instance. And then one of the reporters said, well, if they didn't know what a police officer was, how did they? she know to call 911? And Hester just said, I don't know or I can't talk about that. When the 17-year-old was asked if there was medication or pills in the house, she didn't know what medication or pills was. Maybe they said meds and she hadn't heard that jargony reference to it. Who knows? Maybe they called things different things in their family. <laughs> they are also alleged to have beaten the kids frequently including strangulation. The kids were allowed to keep journals, and there are hundreds of them.
0: That's weird. And the
1: police are hoping that they'll shed some light on the case. I'm sure they looked through them. I'm not sure how much by the time of this press conference, but I wonder if what they wrote in the journals was controlled or restricted. The reporters of the news conference asked a lot of questions. Some good, some that show how far we have to go before people understand this stuff. For instance, one reporter asked what the Turpins got out of keeping their kids really small. At least that's what it sounded like. The sound from the reporter's questions was hard to hear, but that's... And Hestron gave clipped answers or said he couldn't say more. And for instance, that one, he just chalked it up to human depravity. They kept asking why. A public defender for David Turpin said outside the courthouse that our clients are presumed to be innocent and that's a very important presumption. The lawyer, David Matcher, told reporters that the case will be tried in court. It will not be tried in the media. Too late. But he added that defending the Turpins against so many serious charges is going to be a challenge. Yeah, I bet. And I'll tell you what the charges are later. But first, here are some of the answers I found to some of the general questions at the news conference. First, about the the child that was able to get away. Why did she wait all those years? Why didn't she do something? (laughs) Or why didn't the other kids do anything? Bruce Perry, a psychiatrist and senior fellow at the Child Trauma Academy in Houston, said most people would recognize mild forms of the same inaction. It's a coping mechanism, whether it's failing to speak out against off-color jokes, enduring sexual harassment, or staying in an awful marriage. Quote, this happens all the time. The number of individuals who would immediately respond to an opportunity where they could get away is very small compared to the number of people who would have that paralysis and insecurity and confusion about what to do. The vulnerable girl may have been shamed, beaten, or threatened with violence. And only after many missed opportunities did she probably work up the courage to act, he said. It's pretty remarkable that she do that, he mm. said. The power that must have been exerted to keep an entire family like that for so long must have been pretty sophisticated. And I'm glad he said that because I think what a lot of people yes. don't understand is people who are that controlling and when you've been that controlled well, all your yeah, life. you're
0: powerless when you've been that controlled. Right. It's not like you're somebody who's been raised to have, I can't think of the word, free will, free will or agency. Right. It's different for, you know, I'm an adult. And I'm not going to allow somebody to do that to me. But but when you're raised in well, that environment. Right. And in a
1: story by The Independent, attorney Ambrosio Rodriguez said parents convicted in similar cases. And yes, people, there are many, many, many cases yeah. like this. People are like, oh, like, this is so... They've never heard of anything before. But they exerted control over their children through intimidation, psychological and physical coercion, and frequently possess their own belief system. He said other groups have succeeded in keeping the behavior secret by enlisting older children in the rearing and indoctrinating of the younger ones. If older siblings participated in the abuse, they would be less likely to call police. Mm-hmm. And we don't know if that, that happened happens, here. did did happens
0: a lot in sexual abuse, too. And that
1: self-published book contest, I read one book that was good, but I'm sorry, needed some serious editing where a woman had been raised in a family like this and the parents played the kids against each other so that you didn't trust anyone. And people were just glad they weren't the one being abused at at the time time. so they would take part in the abuse of the other kids. Rodriguez said they develop a kind of cultish, doomsday type of religion where the father becomes this mythical leader and the mother and the children's duty is to serve the father. And in case you wonder where his authority comes from, Rodriguez was a longtime Riverside County prosecutor who sent Jessica Banks, a pastor and mother, to prison for life for beating, starving, and drugging her five adopted daughters who were being kept locked in the garage. It's just one of many examples of that type of thing that I found in my research. Dr. Annel Sorry. Keller, who runs the Bellevue NYU Center for Survivors of Torture in New York City, says individuals held under such conditions often become so physically and emotionally weak that they are unable to free themselves even if an opportunity arises. The abuser has basically taken complete control of them. It's a state of severe helplessness. She said many victims of abuse suffer from severe depression, anxiety, nightmares, and are easily startled in public, which I think we heard some accounts of. And why didn't other people notice the red flags? Hestrin, the DA, says it's because the parents isolated the kids, keeping them up all night and sleeping during the day so few people saw them. Some of the articles I read also pointed to the fact that homeschooling can further isolate children, As well, and I think I mentioned this earlier, keep them away from those who know to look for signs of abuse and neglect and report it. Naomi Schaefer Riley in an LA Times op-ed noted that the Turpins met California's minimal requirements for homeschooling. Since their arrest, there have been calls for tightening those regulations. And she says, if only the children had been forced to report to authorities in some way, the thinking goes, surely someone would have realized what was going on. But Riley wrote, there are reasons to question whether it would have solved the problem. She talked to sociologist Richard Gellis, an expert on child welfare systems, who said tightening regulations, quote, doesn't confront the issue that some people are able to put up a good front. Yeah. Riley said that the eldest Turpin son attended community college, earning A's. I think I read he had a 3.95 GPA in many classes, and that bears this out. Now, she says many classes. I read somewhere else he took one class. I know. I'm that- not sure which it is. Gellis, who is the former dean of the School of Social Policy and Practice at the University of Pennsylvania, notes that teachers and administrators, like neighbors and relatives, often engage in what he calls selective inattention. Gellis said research suggests that people are less likely to report those who look like them and seem to be from the same socioeconomic group. Hmm. This is particularly true for white middle class families. Mm -hmm. The more people are like me, the more reluctant I am to report their deviant behavior, the feeling goes, he said. And here's a note on the good public face part. The LA Times in the days after the arrest reported that Ivan Trahan, an attorney who represented the couple in their 2011 bankruptcy, was shocked at the arrest. Quote, To me and my wife Nancy, who was with me during the interviews, we always thought of them as very nice people who spoke highly of their children. He never met the children. No,
0: of course They
1: not. seemed like very normal people who fell into financial problems. Here's another. Eric Aguirre, the family's former landlord in Marietta, California, was shocked when he first saw the reports about the family. Aguirre said the family rented their former five-bedroom house, sight unseen, after moving from Texas. He interacted with the family only once when he came over to perform routine maintenance. The children slept in bunk beds, he said, but nothing about their behavior or the condition of the house seemed out of the ordinary. The children, he said, were quiet, shy, and well-behaved. That was probably Hmm. early after they moved in if the house was clean. And what about that Elvis impersonator? Kent Ripley, the Elvis impersonator (laughs) who presided over those 2016 vow renewal ceremonies, told the Associated Press, watching them now it's kind of haunting and disturbing. They all looked young and thin, but I figured it was just their lifestyle. Maybe the activities they did. Maybe because of their religious beliefs. I didn't get that in depth with them, but I knew they were a fun family. Oh, you did know that, did you? Well, what I'm saying is... I know. (laughs) I'm sorry. This is the whole good face thing the sociologist was talking about. I mean, people are easily swayed, especially, as the guy pointed out, when they're they're this nice white family and... There's another reporter question. Why did they do it? You know, in other words, what did they gain from keeping their children so small, mm-hmm. as the reporter so eloquently said? Some reports, like, for instance, Time Magazine, and basically led with, there's no way to explain this, but some psychologists are trying to anyway, which I thought was bullshit. And again, I know I have to say this every time, when I try to explain the background or psychological reasons for people doing horrible things, I'm not saying it's okay that they yes. did them, murder, but... Again, people like to say, oh, it's evil, or like the DA, it's yeah. human depravity. But when you default to that, it makes it less likely you're going to see all these red flags. Well, the
0: other thing is you've got to try to understand as much as you can to try to prevent it from happening.
1: You know, people ask, why in 30
0: years did nobody see anything? It's because people think... Well, he couldn't do that. He's a nice guy. Right. Yeah. Instead of thinking he's a sociopath, right? which I'm not saying that you should, anytime someone's nice, you should be like, oh, they must be doing something bad right. at home. But Time Magazine does quote the
1: National Child Abuse and Neglect Data System that 71.8% of child abuse or neglect cases occur at the hands of the victim's parents. Mm-hmm. Duh. And it said the leading risk factors in the study were parental alcohol abuse, drug mm-hmm. abuse, or domestic violence. And then it goes on to say that there were not signs of any of those things in this, so whoa, whoa, what could be the reason? In a different article, David Finkelore, professor of sociology and director of Crimes Against Children Research Center at the University of New Hampshire, said that there are two diagnostic profiles that might fit the parents. Delusional or paranoid states, which can lead to all manner of irrational or abusive behavior and a misguided ideology might be another factor. Parents may tell themselves that they're protecting their children from the corruption of an awful society or that children are evil and need to be chastised or brought into line. Ambrosio Rodriguez, the guy I quoted earlier, the former prosecutor in LA, said in a lot of these cases, it's a patriarchal thing where the husband is controlling the situation. The wife is frequently controlled. He predicted in the defense whether she was or not, she she's going to claim she yes. was and that David Turpin's going to have a much harder defense he because was. he's the husband.
0: That's right. And he's the bigger one and he's the, you know, physically larger and right.
1: older and so whatever the real dynamics were, but also the fact that she was 15. I mean, yeah. he was controlling he from, the beginning, it from the beginning. From what the sister saw young. when she went
0: and visited them, <laughs> even though her sister was the spokesperson, and I think a lot of times religion helps play into the many extreme religions are patriarch and if you grow up in a kind of household where the man is considered the head of the family and then you go into a marriage like that with someone who is going to take advantage of that and he's controlling you're kind of you've already been raised in a patriarchal system
1: and you're more like you said primed to be controlled by the patriarch. You know, we talked about the homeschooling. It denies them social interactions with peers who aren't their siblings and gives the parents the ability to further control them by teaching them whatever they want. That's right. Bruce Perry, who I mentioned earlier, the one who talked about the the selective inattention, he had led a team of therapists that interviewed most of the surviving children from the Branch Davidian cult in Mm. Waco. And he said that one of the five-year-olds could recite whole books of the Bible but could not identify circles and squares. Wow. And that's not not explaining the why, but more kind of the how. Yeah. And one thing that people are just beginning to understand and is how control can be exerted, as I said earlier, without physical abuse. And there was physical abuse here, but people don't recognize that kind of control. As the same is abusing, but it's the kind of situation, let's just take a domestic abuse situation where the guy won't let the woman wear certain clothes, where he cuts off her family, where he won't let her talk to her friends, and you hear it over and over and over again and it escalates into sometimes murder and mm-hmm. other things that was the same thing going on here all the kids knew were what the parents told them yes. the families were cut off and it sounds like louise's family was cut off a lot earlier than david's family was and i would guess oh, total total guess at this that david's parents from the quotes of them Saying things seem, you know, they were sweet and they were going by the Bible and all that. They seem more on board. Yeah. And I'm not saying they all knew about the abuse. But they, but seemed they also lo-
0: raised him. Right. Which I'm not saying that they were exactly the same as him. But they for somebody with a mental deficiency or narcissism or something, um, that can be taken further, which is what he did. If he's a sociopath and he takes that the way he was raised with his own
1: sociopathic controlling tendencies and for instance On his belief system and it was different in a lot of ways but we both watched a documentary the kingdom of us we, i think that, is what that
0: it was that
1: took place in great britain and mm-hmm. the father ended up spoiler alert committing suicide but they had a large amount of kids the father isolated the family in a lot of ways and the kids weren't beaten but the father obviously had mental issues and controlled Control the family you, yes. in such a way that it was very damaging to them psychologically and it's funny when they when i was reading about them getting that double wide trailer and this in texas the father got a trailer yes, he did. he ended up killing himself but he had also talked about killing his family yes and he Be-
0: had planned it almost and in
1: kind of a thing where Because he realized as they became adults and stuff, he couldn't control them the way he wanted to anymore. And I almost wonder if he killed himself to keep himself from killing them. Yes, I think he did. So I'm not saying this is something that happens all the time, but it's a dynamic. Some of these guys form cults and some of them just do it with their family. And when there's a wife involved, the wife in Kingdom of Us was trying to... And I think the fact that they weren't physically abused made her situation possibly a little different. But she was concerned about his mental health and wanted because of the kids and stuff to make the family work. But I think some wives... When it's a very strong, controlling, sociopathic patriarch
0: are controlled into being part of the problem. Well, and someone like him, seen it with, with cult leaders, they seek out people like that they can control. Yes. I mean, he wasn't going to marry somebody who's not going to go along. Not going to go and along. And she was very young. And, and that's why they seek out someone usually who's young. Right. And that's why a lot of these cult guys, when they have multiple wives or they get new wives, they're always in their teens. They like someone they can more. They think they can control. The girl, the 17-year-old daughter, must have had tremendous courage. Well,
1: since then, in the past week or so, it's come out that she secretly uploaded videos to YouTube of her singing songs that she apparently wrote herself. And one of them, the lyrics is something like, and I left my notes on it at home, but something like, You always blame me, I'm always to blame, blame, blame. Now, they're being taken care of. The older, quote-unquote, kids who are adults, w- adults wouldn't be going into the foster system because they're adults. They're too old. But yeah. they're trying to find a way to keep them together. Tons yeah. of money has been raised for them. Medical professionals who have helped them. Hester and the DA said that they're trying to treat them very sensitively. Apparently, they're very appreciative. They're all very nice people, from My. what I've read.
0: It's just
1: so It'll be interesting to see what comes out of this. The charges include, against each Turpin, 12 counts of torture and 12 of false imprisonment, 7 counts of abuse of a dependent adult, and 6 counts of child abuse. And that may not seem like a lot, but they may bring more. And also, they start with specific charges about specific things. And David Turpin was also charged with one count of a lewd act on a child under 14. And Hestrin, the DA, wouldn't elaborate on that Mm -hmm. at the press conference and said again, More charges may come up, and there may have been more. They each face 94 years in jail, and they're being held on $12 million bail each and Montajibudin the one who went to school elementary school with the oldest girl said, and we'll end on this note he's hopeful his former classmate can recover and live an enriched life. He said he has learned from his experience and hope others do too there's been a lot of platitudes and a lot of people have said, oh, you know, talking about you know nobody knows their neighbors anymore and all this kind of bullshit. It sounds like the people in California knew their neighbors pretty well but they were respecting their neighbors' privacy but a lot of platitudes, this guy seems sincere and this is i really believe him when he said the resounding lesson here is a simple one something we're taught from the very beginning and that's be nice that's right so it's not some big platitude of dropping a dime on your neighbors or anything or how there's evil and bad but he feels bad because when he was a little boy there was this sad dirty little girl but in any case i also want to say that i just had too much stuff and didn't bring it up but there's also an op-ed column in the la times by these women who have this database of homeschool-related abuse issues, and I'm not saying that all people who homeschool are abusers, but just like the pedophile puts himself in a position where he's around kids, you know, the coach or the Boy Scout leader or whatever, people who are prone to doing what the Turpins did tend to homeschool because, as we talked about earlier, they can maintain control. They've isolated the kids. And I can't recall the stats, The story just got too long, but maybe I'll do a little addendum next episode and just say. But these women have a whole database. They've been keeping track of homeschooling tied to abuse, and the numbers are quite startling. And I also read that dressing them all alike is another form. I mean, I've known people with big families who say, well, we dress them all alike so we can spot them when we're in a crowd, you know, because you can't hold everybody's hands so you don't lose track. But it's another form of exerting control. Yeah, you enter, and you're squashing
0: their personality. just like our Catholic school did to us with our uniforms. Well, you're, it is. I mean, that's what uniform. I mean, it's a way to. But when kind we got home, cut someone down to size and right. say, "Look, you're all right," it
1: takes away your personality. Yeah. But when we got home, we got to wear what we wanted. So we'll probably end up updating this yes. as things go on. And, and as I said, I thought it would be easy and straightforward because huh. it just happened, but there is There's a lot out conflicting. there. conflicting.
0: It's amazing. Yeah. Anytime we research a story, we talk about this. Everybody that does this kind of reporting, I, I don't know what you want to call what we All do. Well, it's reporting. We're gathering We're information, gathering information. telling it's a story. It's hard to get consistent Information that agrees with itself. Yeah, I mean
1: it's like what the even fuck? something that's, because people. It's funny that you see when you see t- two things depicted completely and different. And then you wonder. Or there's the omission, like we talk about with our ranking, like that yeah. 2020. They talked to the one sister. Okay, maybe she's all they had access to, but the reporter didn't seem to have done a lot of research, and so you get this this t- picture that's completely well, different yeah. from what
0: the other siblings well, are saying. Well, you know, it's like when 48 Hours did Dirty John, and they didn't talk to the one sister. Right. It, I don't think she wanted to be No, involved. she probably didn't, but, but I'm just the, saying, uh, but but the other you, thing, if you didn't listen to the podcast... But you, the other thing is, too, the ignorance
1: of reporters... For
0: instance (laughs) Why do you keep him so so
1: small? I don't know But like in the 2020 Where the reporter himself Is talking about the love match Between the 15 year old And the 22 year old
0: You know There's no context But the other thing is The reporter's one thing But it's not like He's the only person Making decisions About what to say No I mean the producer Should be like Look
1: No I don't even know If they write their own scripts I I really don't It's so stupid But in
0: any case Okay, are we ready for For our our recommendations? Yay! (laughs) I'm very excited about our recommendations. We're implementing our NNW rating system, which is negative Nellie's watch. This is the first week
1: where our recommendations are going to carry our NNW ratings. Yes. And let's just go through it. Briefly, okay. <laughs> I know you Do laugh, you but number that. one, bad reenactments. I think we all know what that is. I think we've all seen. And again, but are wa- there
0: really any good reenactments? No, no But there's, there's somewhere it's just a brief thing. Yet.
1: And what I want to say too is that everything starts with a ten,
0: yeah,
1: and then gets points taken away That's for each right. one of these.
0: That's right.
1: And if it's a podcast in which there are no reenactments, well, then that's a gimme point that's for them.
0: Right. Two, narrative cliches. When we review different things, we can point out what the narrative cliches. I mean, You're Right, they're worn out tropes that yeah. make stories yeah. less interesting. Three, racial or gender obtuseness.
1: I just want to clarify from our last episode when we talked about this, I we're not saying it's wrong to point out somebody's race, but there are cliches that go along with race and then there are other things just adjectives like you don't have to say the black doctor walked yeah. into the room you know you can the say the owners. doctor walked into the room and then later either if it's important that he or she is black to pick that oh, and i've read things where every single time it mentions them the black doctor did this the black doctor did that that's so that's what we mean by that not that it's wrong to talk about race okay for lack
0: of good visuals Hmm. Again, with a podcast, that won't come yeah. play, play. Five missing pieces. Mm-hmm. And again, a lot Ooh. of these will come clearer yeah. as we go Yeah. Mm-hmm. Six inaccuracies, anachronisms. Yep. That's one of my... Mm. Mm, I know, me too. Uh, seven, storytelling. Yep. Eight, freshness. Yeah. Nine, repetition. Mm-hmm. And ten, beating the drum. Right.
1: And the only th- thing I want to clarify about that, because we kind of wandered all over the place when we were talking about that last time. I'm not saying people can't have opinions. We obviously do. Or points of view. We obviously do. Or biases. We obviously do. First of all, there's a difference between a narrative and a commentary. But also, even your narrative can have that stuff. But it's when you're, you just are just are banging away at, like 48 Hours does with the death penalty. Just banging and banging yeah. and banging away. We know how you feel. Long you after we need got to keep the point. telling us. You're going to go first, right?
0: Yes. What I'm going to do, well, you'll see. I don't know if you'll like the way I do this or not. Well, it, we'll find I it. guess that, that'll be my problem, I'm gonna right? I'm going to try not to spoil it. But I that's hard to do. talk about a couple things. Yeah, but yeah, we but there there give be spoilers. spoilers. But, but I won't give away the ending because it's not that important and far right. as the grading. Well,
1: but we spoil everything we talk about. Everything we touch. There's spoiled. never... just We're one big spoiler alert. (laughs) (laughs) okay
0: so the one i am going to do as you know i like to watch netflix all the time yes you do and and you're not
1: using that as a euphemism you really do watch netflix yeah i don't because apparently there's also a thing that means having sex i don't
0: understand that whatever yeah just say having sex
1: i know well that's what our generation (laughs) used to our generation used to say having sex but i guess now you you need a cute cliche
0: for it. anyways what i decided to start watching because it kept popping up was seven seconds this is a 10-episode, the first episode. beginning of the episode kind of sets up the story. This white guy is driving through Liberty Park in Jersey City. He hits a black kid on a bicycle. He doesn't call 911. He calls his boss, it turns out he's a cop, and his boss is a cop They're on the drug squad. His boss and two of the guys from the squad show up, and they decide the kid's a goner. Just leave him. He's dead. So they leave him, and it's a hit and run. That's how it starts. So you already know what happened and who did it and who's involved. That's right. not the story. The story is how it unfolds, what happens, the cover-up, the cops having to cover it up, what happens. It's got a lot of layers to it. The drug squad cops are white, and the, the boy and his family are black. There's a 15-year-old boy. Regina King plays his mother, and Russell Hornsby plays his father. They're both excellent, and all the acting in this is excellent. The ADA is a young woman who's black. She's played by Claire Hope. Ashite. I don't know if I have ever seen her in anything before. She's very good. And there's a homicide detective because spoiler alert, the kid ends up dying. He does that in like the either the first or second. I think it's the second. So there's a homicide detective also, and he's white. The drug cops are white. The uh, family's black. So that kind of sets up the dynamic. And one of the reasons the cops want to not report it is because they think there's been enough issues with. With white cops killing black kids, and and it'll no, just be a think rain they, of shit. Yes, on them. they think it will be. So I'm going to go through the ratings, and then I'll talk a little bit more about about the show. So number one is bad reenactments. Doesn't apply to fiction. No, doesn't matter. Number two, narrative cliches. Yes, many. there are many in this. Yes, and I will talk about some of them, and they they'll kind of be spoilers, but you'll deal with it. Fish, the homicide detective. He's got an angry ex-wife, we found out early on. Mm. Very cliche. She's also a cop. He and she have a contentious relationship, but they still have kind of this thing, but blah, blah, blah. At least they don't sleep together. They have a daughter who's a a young teen, but it's just annoying. Yes. There's it's always the own. angry, bitchy yeah, wife. there is. K.J., the uh, DA. Assistant District Attorney.
1: There's Mo and I called her, the drunk, the drunk. The angry, drunk <laughs> black woman. I didn't think
0: she was angry. I thought she's just sad. But she's very drunk often. That's not the cliche, though. That doesn't bother me so much. The cliche is she has a relationship with her father where he's some high-powered lawyer, and she comes from a rich family, and she's trying to prove herself to him, and she's not worthy because he puts her down. And blah, blah, blah. That's a cliche, maybe not for a black woman, but for a young. Right. Take the, right, the you young can, lawyer right. type or the young professional whose father. And the same thing happened on The Good Wife with What's His Face, the kid from. Yeah. The guy from. The guy from Gilmore, Gilmore Girls. Girls, right? Whose name I know but can't think of right he a, His last name has a bunch of right. uh, consonants in it. Yes. And also The
1: Guardian, the show with the handsome Simon, Simon Baker, Baker where Dabney Coleman was his father oh, and he was ew. drunken on drugs and he was a lawyer who couldn't live up to his father and ended up being um a guardian so, ad litem oh that's right and I saw that. I be, as part that. of his
0: it was a good show but but we're not talking is about that the other narrative cliche is Jablonski who is the young cop that that hits the kid. Yes. He has a ne'er-do-well father mm. who has been absent most of his life, but shows up, shows up once in a while, drunk, trying to ingratiate himself with his son because he needs money. And that is also yes a trope that I'm fucking sick of. Yeah. There's, at the beginning, his wife is, Jablonski's wife is pregnant. hmm and, and she seems very sweet. I've only watched one episode. No, but She's but not. pregnant, okay. she does, it does, it's only a very short, the cliche part of it. She does have the baby quickly, so we don't have this <laughs> series, all through the series, someone's wife is pregnant, which I fucking hate. I know. All the hands on the stomach stuff, you know? Yeah, and just, like, just the... Oh, I'm pregnant, and I'm so noble, and all this shit. And I had a baby too, so don't you know whatever. And the other cliche is the bad cops on the take. You know, they're they're just very cliche. I mean, it's like so. I don't trust anyone. They're like these Jersey guys. They're they're like although the guy that plays D'Angelo is his name is David Lyons, and he's Australian, which I didn't realize. Mm. Well, even Australian guys can play cliche Jersey guys. So there are many narrative cliches. That are annoying to me in this. But Mm -hmm. the worst cliched narrative in this show, which there isn't a lot of time devoted to it, but it bugged the shit out of me. And I saw it coming from a mile away. And I thought, well, maybe I'm wrong. And then it turned out I was right. Drunk girl, woman, is having or has had... An affair with her boss, who's an older guy, white guy. She's black. I don't. The black and white thing wasn't th- that much of an issue. The fact that she's a young woman and he's a guy in his, looks like late 40s, mid 50s, I can't tell. It was very fucking annoying to me because I saw her interacting with him and there was some. Kind of a hint to something in their past. And I was like, oh, please tell me they didn't have a fucking affair. And then she went to his house for something at okay. some in the, but she goes to tell him something about the case and his wife answers and his wife's really bitch to her. And it was the same I swear to God, almost the same friggin' scene as in that the killing, whatever that one is that took place in Washington State with the red-haired actress. Yeah, I only watched the first. She had an affair with her superior. It was in the past, and she went to his house, and his wife was pissed. Same friggin' thing. It's like do you notice none of these shows have the young
1: guy having the affair with the female? Well, if they are,
0: it's it's different.
1: Yeah, like it's
0: it's like she's like this old desperate, or I don't know. Right.
1: It's that's my least favorite. It's a, this,
0: why? Why? Why do we? What does that add to the storyline?
1: You know, I only watched the first episode, but I don't think it ever adds anything to the storyline unless you know the boss maybe turns some, out to be a murderer. Oh well, or which somehow, they did,
0: which he did in the killing. Spoiler alert.
1: But not in this. No, or if it compromises the person's
0: decisions. Well, that's maybe that's what the writer writer but, was trying to add. That oh, well, it adds this tension between them because she's defying him and blah blah blah. But you blah, can, you there
1: can be tension to defying your boss. I know. Not that that's ever happened to me but not having an affair with the person. And this is yeah. why it gets a minus in our books. It's an easy cliche to go to instead of trying to develop a more interesting storyline. And also, all these things where women are having affairs with their boss on TV and it's like nowadays, I'm like, I know it still happens, but it's fucking sexual harassment. It's not supposed to happen, even if your office doesn't have a policy against it. I don't understand, and I don't know, because as I said, I've only watched the first episode, if anybody says... This should not be going on, but does well, anyone? Well, his
0: wife does. She confronts No,
1: her. but I mean, anyone in the office? No. Or and I'm sure people. Well, or is there any? Is there any attention from the show? No. That an older male no, boss no, and no, a younger female, no. and that's what bugs me. Well, I
0: think what they're trying to show is. She obviously has father issues because she has that cliched, difficult relationship with her father where she's trying to prove herself to him and he blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And so she's got that. So I think they're trying to show... I know. I'm Just let me tell you. It's
1: like one cliche has I know. to another one.
0: And then she, uh, when she argues with her boss, he wants her to drop the case she doesn't want to, which is also a cliche, but I can live with that because I'm sure it happens. But... I think as the viewer, you feel like, well, she wouldn't be reacting to him this way if they didn't have more than a, a professional relationship because she, she reacts kind of I don't know strongly but I don't think that's nothing when, when I realized that they had had an affair in the past which isn't really a spoiler because you can see it a mile away and you'll be like give me a fucking break yeah, so it's not like... an ongoing one it's... well it was in the past but then of course the something re-kindle. happens and of course and they're in the office at night and you know what else I worked in an office where someone was having an. I've worked at more than one but when it's someone that's like in charge of everybody else and someone's having an affair with them first of all everybody knows yeah and second of all everyone is in annoyed by it and also you're trying to impress your father. Why would you jeopardize your career by having an affair with somebody? Because it's not going to do you any good. Because everybody's going to be like, she just slept her way up, and then for her boss. Right. I mean, and the, well, you and can look as at the-, the boss. I know they're idiot in these yes. situations, but you're jeopardizing your career right. because but she can turn around. And- Although
1: they don't think that, and they know. I know, and they know that her career it- pre Me Too movement, her career was more in jeopardy than his. But there's two ways you can look at it. The first way is cuz the writers are TV writers and don't work in a normal workplace That's like everybody true. else and so they have no idea how this woman would think or how she would feel and there are women writers on the show I mean I'm Well say, they know. are TV writers That's too true. or she's an idiot.
0: Yeah. Well, but she you is can't drop drun- she's quite drunk all the time. I know. At but, least she has that excuse. that
1: probably jeopardizes and, her career too.
0: I mean the only thing that made it even the least bit interesting was that his wife seems like a fucking nutcase and assaults not assaults her, but accosts her on, in the public street well, in front kind of reporters. Of cliche, it is kind of cliche, but it was funny. The guy, the DA, doesn't suffer anything for they it. They never do. I know, and it just annoyed the shit out of me, and I just feel like, can we please do something different, please? Right, right. Why do you have to have it? Why? Right. In fact, I almost want to take off two points, but I'll only take off one. Okay. So its score at this point is? A nine. Nine. Then, number three, racial and gender obtuseness. I didn't see much of that. There are a lot of different writers, women of different ethnicities from their names. Women and men, it seems about even. The two that wrote the most episodes, Evangeline Ordaz and Rhett Rossi. So, men and women writing the episodes, different ethnicities, it looks like. I didn't notice... Anything that struck a chord with me as far as obtuseness for racial and gender. So I give it a no points off for that. Lots of times in fiction,
1: TV fiction, the racial obtuseness will come along with the narrative cliches. Yes, it
0: will. For lack of good visuals, no, I didn't have any problem with that. I thought it was very visually appealing and did a good job. I thought, just having seen
1: one episode, the final shot... In The first episode where the ADA goes to the snowbank where Did the kid like was ADA? because, yeah, the, the always drunk ADA, you they the said bl- he was still alive and crawling around yes. trying to get out of the snowbank. And it shows her looking, and you see some blood, and then it pans you back, see this huge, and you just see is huge it the farther blessing, it pans back, yes. the more blood there was, and,
0: and it gives you a picture of. What he must have gone through, and if you're he the, wasn't just dead, okay. right?
1: And if, and as I only watched the first episode, D'Angelo, the the cop, bad cop in charge guy, goes over to look over the snowbank yes. when they realize that he's yes. hit somebody. Yes. and he looks, and then he comes back and says, "No, he's dead. I can tell yes. just by looking at him." And the guy who hit him, Jablonski, is like, "Well, did you feel his pulse?" I can't remember exactly what yeah. he says. And, D- and D'Angelo's like, "I don't have to. He's yes. dead." Yes. And obviously, he's just lying his and fucking ass and, off. Yes. It, it is somebody who's not. only watched the first episode says
0: five missing pieces you might think so when you start, but it's the type of thing it's ten episodes you've got to watch the whole thing. I think by the end, anything you're thinking is answered right
1: and a mystery, even one where you know who done it at the beginning there's, there's there there be needs missing. to be missing pieces for it to be a mystery. Yes. And the thing is for, when you as you said when you get to the end,
0: those questions yes. need to be answered and it's not like a like we were talking about with a nonfiction thing where, you're you know. leaving stuff out. Yeah. Number six inaccuracies. The one thing there might be others that I didn't pick up on, so that's fine. The one thing that really annoyed me in the first episode when the, his wife, the reason he's rushing and hits the kid is his wife's in the hospital because she's having some kind of p- pains because she's pregnant and it, it's, she's not due yet. And apparently she has lost babies. In she the past. lost a baby before, as we find out. She she doesn't give birth that time, but she does give birth quickly after that, and supposedly it's an it's early, um, and the baby's premature and blah blah blah. Well, they show the baby and it's smoking a cigar and watching TV. It's not huge. He's not. He is. There's a small. It's a small baby, but it's not a premature baby. And I know that. A lot of people be like, well, who's going to... And I know that, but I know... People know babies. I gave babies. birth to a two-pound baby, and they are fucking tiny, 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 yes. tiny. You can't even imagine. It took forever for her to get to be a normal, like, even four pounds, which this baby looked like it was about six. So I was like, that's a big fucking premature baby, which is not a big deal. It's just that I But inaccuracies, it, as we yes. said, take so you I out of the story. Point because I, oh, I wow, I didn't know we could do that. I make my own rules, baby. Okay. Okay. Number seven, storytelling. I liked the storytelling. I thought it was a good job. A lot of things happened that surprised me, but at the same time, they weren't twists that were un un um gratuitous twist yeah they weren't like oh come on kind of things they were like oh my god right. there was no mystery really so that's not the factor like i said it was the storyline is the cover-up and what happened as a result right. of that and what people did to try to keep it going and what other people did right. in reaction to what happened and, and one
1: thing too and i don't know if this show does this but it, it probably should and when you start out a 10-part series knowing who did it it needs to uncover things as it goes along yes. about the characters. All the things you assumed on the in the first episode, you
0: may be wrong about because yes. you're finding some things of the out. things you find out you're you are wrong about. Mostly having to do with characters and what they did and how they are reacting to things and things you think are going to happen and they don't there's a lot of different layers in some ways it reminded me of the wire because they are different groups of people that they follow along and things that happen and they do interact with each other but we get to know different people we also see different people one guy's a drug dealer and, of course, the drug guys know him because they're on the take. But also the brother of the uncle of the kid that gets killed knows him because he used to be in the gang, but now he's, a, he's in the army and he's come back to um, town. And, in fact, he was coming back the day the kid got mm-hmm. hit by the car. So you see different sides to people. I think they do a good job covering all the bases. The parents of the boy, the father's very religious, the mother... Is also involved in the church, but we find out she is not as religious and stuff like that. And um, the story is good from beginning to end. You know, it doesn't lag. But it also, it isn't one of those things where oh, you, you never know. It's, you know, it's just stupid twists that don't make sense or anything yeah, like that. Twist but, for the sake of being. Yeah, twist. it was good. Eight freshness. There's some tropes, like I said, the pregnant wife. Well, also the story the, itself is this yeah. a story that. That you feel like you're seeing something new, or is no? I mean, it, it isn't. Um, I, but I didn't take any points off for it because I thought that the way they told it was good. Right. But the the cop doing something like that and covering it up—that's something we've seen a lot. Yeah. In a lot of stories, so it's not. Like it's that's like fresh.
1: it's like you've seen we've seen stories we've where seen the cop, cop bad cops. Right, but then what what they do with it is fresh.
0: I feel like the freshness comes from the acting. And a lot of the script was good. There wasn't the same old tired right. And the characters. Yeah, the characters were were different enough. The one quibble would be the bad cops. They're kind of a little bit cliche. Not yeah, cliche and a little bit like I've seen these before. Yeah, I've seen this type before. But maybe that's what they're like. I I'm not taking off points because I feel like overall it didn't bother me enough for me to take a point off for. If some characters react in ways that aren't expected so i thought that was good so the characters also i thought they were well-rounded and defined even though the type of person might be a bit of a stereotype some of them they did give enough background that at least you kind of understood where how they were acting where they were coming from i didn't mind the fact that kj was drunk all the time well, near the end, she doesn't seem as drunk as she Really? Because it bugged the shit out of me, and well, I only watched one it episode. It bugged me that she was drunk, but it wasn't the normal drunk. So, right yeah. I don't know. It wasn't like... It, she didn't make me as angry as on the wire... What was his name? McNulty. Oh, God. I know, but he was a cliche in so many ways. He was. So many. Um, Fish, uh, the character of Fish was interesting. He, <laughs> he adopted older dogs. Aww. And he has like a house full of dogs. Uh, and but it's not it wasn't a quirky thing it, when you keep watching it it yeah. didn't bother well, me I liked him first episode too Jablonski the actor was okay except he always looks like he's looking down at the I don't know I can't I see you doing yeah he's playing a part I mean maybe I've never seen the guy in anything else that first scene where he hit the kid
1: his reactions Bo to Knapp. the other
0: his name is Bonap. Yeah.
1: his reactions to the other cops. And he was, he's the fact, fact just, that I thought he did a good job in that scene, I got a little tired of him as the episode went on, though. I I well,
0: you know, part of it's his character is yeah. annoying. There's a, a young woman, uh, Nadine, who's a witness. You find out later, she's a heroin addict. Her, she's a good from a good family, but she's a heroin and Blah blah blah. Her acting, especially in her last scenes, is very very good okay that all the acting regina king is a really good throughout and she's the one who plays the mom of the kid who was Latrice killed right butler yeah i didn't think that there was anyone on the show that i thought uh you know they shouldn't be here because they suck everyone the acting was just great beating the drum okay number nine repetition there wasn't a, not really sometimes even with fiction you get the same Type of people will say the same thing, right? They, they have the same said, conversation like, like they do on soap operas, right? Like, like every day, right? They have the same conversation but act like it. We didn't have, I didn't, I don't remember any instances of me thinking, Yeah, you already said that. Yeah, beating the drum, not as much as one would think with the subject matter. They really did not, you couldn't really get on board with the uh bad cops, but it was showing us the racial issues without telling us it didn't frame it as the black people are so good and the white cops are so bad or vice versa it was showing everybody's experience and we had the duo of kj and fish who were black and white and did talk about she talked about it a bit about, about. race race issues uh-huh but I didn't find that they were beating any kind of drum. I didn't get the feeling that the writers of the show were trying to... Make like, a big point. Make a big point. Like some do. Some like Some obvious, cop yeah. shows have an agenda or yes. an obvious point of view, and this one didn't. It was just telling the story about what happened when this guy hit the kid and what happened with his parents and what happened with the cops and what happened with everybody's life getting right. fucking ruined by the, this one thing that happened. My... Final rating is an 8.5. Oh, that's pretty good. This is my synopsis. Good acting and layered storytelling make up for some pretty overused narrative cliches. Well, I guess overused cliche is a redundant. Redundant, yeah. I will say it wasn't uplifting at the end. It wasn't like, oh, everything's worked out, you know. Well, that can be annoying that too. That makes it more realistic. Yeah. You don't get a real good sense of justice being served, but it was a when do you ever? I recommend it. Oh, thank you. And then you can do your rating later on when yes, you finish when it. I finish watching and it, you can I'll do see mine. What you think? I know. I will. It'll be nice if you have something different. It would be, even, even though we win. have the same. The same well, line. I watched one
1: episode and I enjoyed it enough. I just haven't had time to watch the rest.
0: I only watch the History Channel.
1: Yeah. Whatever. Whatever. Okay.
0: So, what was yours?
1: Well, I did a podcast, and I, there's only been three. Only three episodes have dropped. But I'm gonna rate it and I think that we can reserve the right to if we rate something adjust. that isn't completed, we can also re we can always re rate or adjust that's a new it, thing right? I just made up. Okay. Yeah. Hey but if
0: I can make up half a point, you can You make- can
1: that's right. It's missing and murdered, season two Ooh. Finding Cleo.
0: How do they know they're murdered if they're missing? Sorry. (laughs) Oh, my fucking God.
1: And this is a podcast by the Canadian Broadcasting System. Season one was Who Killed Alberta Williams, which I enjoyed quite a bit. I was so excited to hear that there was a season two. And it's funny, I'm listening to Somebody Knows Something, and they played the first episode of this, and that's how I realized, oh, because my iTunes... Tangent unsubscribe me to a bunch of things. And it's very annoying. And so I have to resubscribe to them. I just want to say too, I loved Done Disappeared. (laughs) But it is very hard to listen to Someone Knows Something and to Missing and Murdered because their narrative structure, and I don't even have a problem with it, but it's the same one he uses in Done Disappeared. So he's parodying it. (laughs) You know, he is so funny. But Whenever they do it now, I'm la- it makes me laugh. A lot of podcasts, and
0: even even true crime shows,
1: too. too. But the way he says, like, he asks all the questions. Was this? The, the, was it? Yes. And the way he describes things. I like it. Do. Or
0: when they interview someone.
1: But in any case, I'll get right into it. Bad reenactments, obviously, no points off because it's a podcast. So podcasts, you know, there's never going to be a zero. They um, could, though. Narrative cliches there are none Ooh. the reporter connie walker is a first nation person which is their much better word for the thing we're still yeah, grappling I like that first nation name I we're like we're still grappling to call our native people and who killed Alberta Williams is about an Indigenous woman, Alberta Williams, who was murdered, and it's never been solved. And she talks in that a lot about the huge amount of Canadian Indigenous women yes. who have been killed to much greater rate than white women, yes. or that nobody seems to give a shit about. And she is also she's Cree, and this one too, Cleo, is also indigenous and they had something called and i think a lot of people are semi-familiar with the fact that for centuries the government both in canada and the u.s tried to assimilate or take away the culture in a lot of ways of native people among other things in canada they had what they called the 60s scoop in the 1960s they scooped kids away from their parents Mm. and had them adopted by white families for various reasons, and Cleo was a girl in a family of six kids, two boys and four girls, like our family. They were taken away from their mother, adopted to different families. What they heard was that Cleo went to a family in Arkansas. Then her mother found out in the mid, this happened in like 1972, 73, in the mid-70s, that Cleo had been trying to hitchhike home and had been raped and murdered and left by the side of the road. They don't know where her grave is. Nobody ever saw her body. Nobody knows. They have never been told anything else about it. This is some of her surviving siblings trying to find out what happened to her. And one of them contacted Connie Walker... The reporter, and I was talking about narrative cliches. There really aren't any. She's talking about indigenous people, she's one herself, and she talks about it in a way that's relatable. She doesn't, you know, make although she easily could blanket generalizations, she doesn't say, you know, native people are like this and white people are Mm -hmm. like this. It's just a very clean telling of what's going on, and to that extent there's really no racial or gender obtuseness she does a good job of explaining certain things that we wouldn't be familiar with as white people or as people in the u.s without being condescending or talking down or over explaining Hmm. lack of good visuals not an issue Hmm. since it's a podcast although there is there's one photo of cleo a little school photo from when she's like maybe eight or nine or ten that's the logo for the show and that they talk about. That's the one visual and it works well. Mm -hmm. I'm only on episode three but so far there aren't missing pieces. Both Connie Walker and both of this and Who Killed Alberta Williams and Someone Knows Something and they're both written in the same way. They do a good job of reeling out the story And you may have questions about things, but they fill in the gaps when it's time to. They don't try to front load all the information, and it flows very well. And so far, if there's anything I have questions about, I'm confident they'll be answered. That's something I can revisit Once it's done, inaccuracies or anachronisms, nothing. I trust her as a, she seems credible to me that what she's telling me, things I don't know much about, seem accurate. She backs her stuff up. She attributes things. The storytelling is excellent. She lets the story tell itself. She doesn't use a lot of overblown language or adjectives or adverbs. I know there are people who, who have criticisms of these CBC podcast as is, is being too descriptive or the language being too flowery. I kind of like the descriptions. She does a good job of describing people, and someone knows something. David Riggin will really describe people and describe settings. I find it fits with hmm. her um, storytelling, and I, the way she describes things flows well and doesn't seem, like, overwrought or... Mm-hmm. Okay. Freshness, yes, it's a very fresh story. Mm. We don't. Nobody else is telling the story she's telling. Yeah. Nobody else is telling the type of story she's telling. There's a lot of true crime out there mm-hmm. about obviously young women who are killed or missing or the victims of an unsolved murder, but nobody's telling these types of yeah. stories about young women. And I appreciate the fact that she's she's not going for the low hanging fruit repetition. There are some of these many episode podcast where there's a tendency to repeat facts a lot and stuff sometimes I think the people feel they have to because we may forget yeah and I find what repetition there is is necessary to the story if I'm reminded of things it doesn't bother me there hasn't been an instant yet where I've been saying okay already
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know we you keep saying that yeah, I get it and beating the drum this could easily be a story. The indigenous people, the, the bureaucracy, the unfeeling bureaucracy, the lack of help the family gets trying to find out what happened and all the issues related, she lets the story tell itself. She's a very empathetic person. She tells her story with a lot of empathy, but she's very smart in letting... You don't need to beat the drum on this story. All you have to do is listen to the story. And so this gets a 10,
0: Ooh. and i know that's
1: after only three episodes but I'm a huge fan I was a huge fan of who killed Alberta Williams oh, I haven't listened to any missing a murdered and so far i'm a big fan of this once it's done and i can't remember how many episodes there are but once i've listened to all of them i'll let you know whether my 10 stands or whether you know i had any issues with anything but i highly recommend it she tells a very good story it's important that's a word that bugs me a lot when people use it but it's easy to overlook stories like this, but in a lot of ways, there's so much more to them than there are to the stories we hear a lot. Mm-hmm. And Okay. So my first yeah. NNW rating is a 10, so so much for being a negative nelly. Yeah, I
0: guess you're not very negative. Well, you
1: weren't very negative either.
0: Yeah, we picked good ones this time.
1: And, you know, sometimes it's easier to rate something that...
0: That we you feel have good a lot about, but yeah. it's
1: funny because since we started this, and I haven't had a lot of time in the last week or two to watch a lot of stuff. But like in, in for instance, in my research for my story tonight, I found myself rating yeah, everything I know. I, I've been, I, have I been saw in my head, yeah, and some things did not fare well. Me. Like that 2020 would have been maybe a one or a two. Twenty sometimes, and it I don't watch it that much because uh, I can't too even too tell you much. who the reporter was. But anyway, so that's today's show.
0: Yes. Yeah. Well, all uh, that stuff we always say at the end. You know, you're listening to us, so you've obviously found us probably on Apple Podcasts. Yes.
1: And our website is Crime and Stuff Online where we have more stuff about ourselves we'll and we also
0: sometimes. you can write visuals. our visuals
1: and we have yeah the more stuff page where we have links to research and stuff we used in our story and i am as always a few episodes behind yes but I, i'm trying to catch up we're also gonna or i am going to create a page about our rating system yeah and we'll have our ratings and stuff on there once i get around to it and you can also find all our episodes on there
0: Yes, you can. Back
1: to number one. You, <laughs> the yoga twin. You can also find us on Twitter, sisters, at Crime and Stuff. Yes, please follow
0: stuff. us on Twitter. It's pathetic. And our Facebook. The, don't say that. Okay. Yeah, but they can see.
1: I know they can see, but we don't uh, let them figure out oh, it's pathetic. Okay, okay. Our Facebook page, Crime and Stuff Podcast.
0: Yes. We have an Supposedly, Instagram account that we've we never used. we don't use I don't like Instagram. I've I like before.
1: Instagram, but it's... It's hard to it's, we, We'd have to think of things to put on it. And it's just too much. There's just so much to deal with. <laughs> like, I, I like own, Twitter
0: the best. And we have our own Twitter accounts. Media. You can... Um, uh,
1: I don't I'm really M- know I'm Milliken 47 I, You're like... It's yours re- is too that, long. I'm like I, Rebecca, Rebecca Mill
0: too. Yeah. But if you... Um, and no. while she's
1: looking up her Twitter handle, you can find information about my mystery novels. I'm um, Maureen Millican. Rebecca. Oh, God. Right in the middle of my website. <laughs> com. Yeah. Well, everybody else plugs it. Well, you didn't hear what I was saying. I, I was saying they could find more yes, information. Yes, I about heard her? you. Okay. I
0: was waiting to see if you were not. Other people plug their shit. I had nothing. I was not making a judgment okay. about that. Re- I was waiting to make sure you so were So what's done. your Twitter handle? It's at Rebecca Milliken. It's <laughs> Rebecca Millike two. Wow. So instead of that, <laughs> instead of the, end, it's hard to believe. There's another Rebecca millica out there's, there. There's instead of so it's Rebecca Milliken, but instead of the end, there's a, there's two. a two. Wow. Can and you can rate and review how us? How can I lose? Oh, you know, what? I I'm going to blame my loss of followers on the fact that Twitter's getting rid of bots. So some of my followers were probably bots. That's oh, what yeah. I'm saying. Yeah, well, I it's noticed not when I are very like, like, Why first the fuck am I following? When I here? started my first,
1: twi- when I first started on Twitter, like I can't remember when it was 2010, 2011, I think early 2011. I immediately got these weird followers, and obviously they were bots. They weren't good followers, and they never retweeted. So. <laughs> <laughs> and you can rate and review us on iTunes, please. And donate on Patreon. Yes. We, there are links on our website, Crime and Stuff Online. And if you
0: haven't listened to our other podcast, GroovyTube, we, we are We're making, in hiatus. We're in hiatus, but if you haven't listened yet, we've well, got yeah we'll get back to it as soon as i get my book written yeah she's got to write her book it's, it's going oh, I'm missing my brady bunch though i miss doing it too
1: i miss doing groovy too but she does have to get it's a lot book. of fun all
0: her her fans are clamoring for book number and if we free. get enough
1: donors we can get a computer for rebecca and she can help edit the podcast and that will give me more free time
0: and yeah. then maybe we could start. Doing I would edit it. Too. I know you would. You I'll would edit, ha- You wouldn't have a choice. Out. You would have I'll, to. And then I'll just. It'll be my podcast. Yeah. I'll yeah. control it.
1: Yeah. Wait till you see how easy that is to edit a person completely out. <laughs> like, I try. know
0: that you've tried. You yeah. certainly have. And okay. do you know what you're doing next? next I episode? have some ideas, but I'm not sure. Uh, you always I'm not keep gonna... it a secret. You're always so coy. And I, because I might change my mind. I, I don't know. want to disappoint. But also, I think I'm going to go back a little further in time, just because some of these newer ones are getting me bummed out. And when it's when there's a little bit of time passed, it's a little more. It's less... like no one suffered. Yeah. yeah.
1: See, yeah. you, I, I guess you have more feelings than I do. I don't get really get bummed out. Maybe you're so a sociopath. My, maybe I am, or maybe it's just my cold journalistic. Attitude. I
0: it's the kids ones, and we've done I know because you're many. a mom. Yeah, no, it's just that we've done a lot. Okay, so until next time, see ya. Bye, bye.
1: And I just got a pop-up ad. Fuck for something called Goop. What the fuck? That stupid
0: Gwyneth Paltrow. Fucking,
1: fucking. Blame her. Where's my
0: that story. Fucking Hang on. Pain in the ass.
1: Got it. See, this is this is why I should write everything out and not try to do things from my fucking phone.